On the Magnus podcast today, we are discussing mimetic rivalry and the triangulation of desire with AMI senior fellows Patrick Downey and Tiffany Schubert as they open their class in the Magnus Fellowship on Rene Girard and William Shakespeare. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your host, John Johnson. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. We are still here. This is the second season. We're still going strong. In fact, great things kicking off in the fellowship this week. If you want to join a class, you can do so at magnusinstitute.org. Become a fellow today. It's as free as it is freeing. We got a great lecture for you today from the first class in Rene Girard's Theater of Envy course, led by senior fellows Patrick Downey and Tiffany Schubert. Really is an amazing lecture coming your way today. For more, magnusinstitute.org. Enjoy. <laughs> okay, uh, Tiffany, did you want to read that for us? Or maybe kind of explain a bit who's speaking in general context. Uh, this is Ulysses speaking, and he's speaking to Agamemnon and Nestor. And we're obviously in the middle of the Trojan War. Right? They're sort of conferring about why the war is not going well. Uh, so Ulysses is about to, in this speech, launch into an explanation uh, as to why the Greeks have not yet defeated the Trojans. Troy yet upon his basis, had been down, and the great Hector's sword had lacked a master, but for these instances. The specialty of rule hath been neglected. And look, how many Grecian tents do stand, hollow upon this plain, so many hollow factions. When that the general is not like the hive, to whom the foragers shall all repair, what honey is expected? Degree being visited, the unworthiest shows is fairly in the mask. The heavens themselves, the planets in this center, observe degree, priority, and place. Insister, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom in all line of order. And therefore is the glorious planet soul, in noble eminence enthroned and sphered amidst the other, whose medicinable eye corrects the influence of evil planets, and posts, like the commandments of a king, sans check to good and bad. But when the planets in evil mixture to distort, disorder wander, what plagues and what portents, what mutiny, what raging of the, sea, of the sea, shaking of the earth, commotion in the winds, frights, changes, horrors, divert and crack, rend and deracinate the unity and married calm of states, quite from their fixture. Oh, when degree is shaked, which is the ladder of all high designs, the enterprise is sick. How could communities, degrees in schools and brotherhoods and cities, peaceful commerce from dividable shores, the primogenity and due of birth, prerogative of age, crown, scepters, laurels, but by degree stand in authentic place? Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. Each thing meets in mere a pugnancy. The bounded waters should lift their bosoms higher than the shores and make a sop of all this solid globe. Strength should be lord of imbecility and the rude son should strike his father dead. Force should be right or rather right and wrong between whose endless jar justice resides should lose their names and so should justice too. 
Then everything include itself in power, power into will, will into appetite, and appetite, a universal wolf, so doubly seconded with will and power, must make perforce a universal prey and last eat up himself. Great Agamemnon, this chaos when degree is suffocate, follows the choking. And this neglection of degree it is that by a pace goes backward with a purpose it hath to climb. The generals disdained by, by him one step below, he by the next, that next by him beneath. So every step exampled by the first that is sick of his superior grows to an envious fever of pale and bloodless emulation. And tis this fever that keeps Troy on foot, not her own sinews. To end a tale of length, Troy in our weakness stands, not in her strength. Great. <clears throat> Thanks. Well, so Tiffany, you, you've been reading your Gerard and what jumps out at you in the light of those Gerard's arguments from this passage? Uh, so especially the, the last few lines, we have the general's disdained by him one step below, he by the next. So there's so Ulysses describing this cascade of of disorder sounds like uh, the mimetic contagion essentially right the way that it sort of it's it spreads sort of have the the higher models uh, and then that spreads down right to the lower to the lower to the lower to the lower and so that it's making all uh, the whole state the whole uh, the whole Greek federation here uh, sick. Right. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh well, I guess I was also just thinking about uh, this this uh, the this lack of order. Uh, I hadn't thought about it until now, but that seems to correspond to what Gerard talks about with uh, uh, what Gerard said is says about prescription, right? uh, the the forbidding of desire as being something that actually keeps the chaos of. Uh, of mimesis or of mimetic desire keeps it in check. And that seems to be at least analogous to what Ulysses is saying here, right? There's something about when a society is rightly ordered and you have the higher serving the lower in the way the sun serves the universe, the king serves uh, the commons, that keeps all of this in check. Mm-hmm. When that's gone, then there's this sort of chaos of of mimetic desire that's loose. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 the and the theme we'll see later in in Shakespeare with the uh, I think it's Titania uh, is the idea of a storm, bounded waters. is also in the Bible. So when you have the mimetic uh, contagion where everybody becomes doubles of one another, it's like a. a a hurricane that destroys all landmarks. There's no high or low, it's all a storm. And so you eliminate any markers of things of what things to the right or the left. And so that that sea, the idea of a sea, the boundless sea that overcomes everything is that plague that is people are terrified of breaking out the mimetic uh, contagion. Uh, and so what you wanna do is you wanna bring things outside of the storm up on dry land where you have rank mountains, lows, valleys and hills and that's that's why rank is so important. And, and you're right, yeah, the commandment is key because the, the fact that you see the tenth commandment at the end of the commandments, it's the law and the authority of the lawgiver that now allows this uh, external mediation to take place, where you have to desire through the lawgiver and their authority. So they become the eyes by which you view your actions and your objects of desire. 
you happily or unhappily, but either way, you have to submit to your parents say, no, you can't do that. And you've got to salute. Uh, and as long as you salute to your parents, then you just don't go for it. Even though you may like to, you don't. Uh, and then it keeps everything in check. But the minute you just thumb your nose at your parents, you have the crisis of degree where you don't listen to your parents anymore. You don't listen to the general. Then it's like the bees don't have the queen anymore and they all do their own thing. And that becomes actually the opposite of freedom. Then it becomes a storm of chaos, the repugnancy of everybody to everybody else. And so everybody is now at war with everybody else. Other, other thoughts are from reading this, trying to make sense of some of these details in this passage. Yes, I'm, I'm interested in this descent uh he's talking about um if you have it in front of you it's around line 1 118 and on when he starts talking about this lack of lack of order which really which results in this right lack of justice mm-hmm. and then everything is, uh descends into right into power will uh and then appetite mm-hmm. right uh, mm-hmm. um I guess I was wondering about the the relationship between appetite and the kind of mm-hmm. desire that Gerard uh, mm-hmm. between yeah I guess right yeah coveting and appetite is is appetite this sort of is that is that something like the erotic uh-huh. you were yeah. talking earlier is that yeah yeah so we'll, we'll notice this is this will be per, this is pertinent to what's going on today because you read your Foucault woke stuff. Justice disappears and everything's power. So really, you think it's justice, it's really power. So that's because that's what happens when you reduce everything's level. You Justice involves rank. There's got to be justices that give you justice. But when you eliminate rank, you then turn justice into just raw power. And so it'd be like your parents. Oh, yeah, you, I just got to obey you because you're stronger than me. But now I'm a teenager. I'm bigger than you. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And if the parent agrees to that, then you just have a power relationship between you and your parents. But what you want is a just relationship because that means there's a, a third thing, which is this ranking system. And the ranking thing is what puts you in your place rather than just the raw power. But once it's power, ironically, you don't actually gain uh, power because power's in the will, will into appetite, but then appetite itself becomes a mimetic appetite. It's not the appetite you want and what you want. It's just the appetite that, that tends to turn everybody into the same. They actually, in one sense, have the same appetite. Uh, and then the appetite becomes the universal wolf. So doubly, and notice the doubly, it's going to be double there. There's a some doubling of the appetite seconded with will and power must make perforce a universal prey. So the universal wolf, the universal prey, whether the predator or the prey, the victimizer, or the victim, they all become interchangeable and you can reverse them. And, and this destroys everything. And so you're terrified of the result of this until and last eat up himself. So this eating up himself is what Satan does. That's Satan casting out Satan. It's like this universal predator and prey eats itself up when it can find a victim. And then by consuming itself into just one victim, it seems to eliminate itself. Uh, but that's the problem is now if you don't have that victim, you don't get the ability to... Uh, eat yourself up. You just have universal wolf and universal prey. And the problem is the universality of both. They both are interchangeable. There's really no distinction between predator or prey in this sense, because they're universal. It's also so, interesting that you lose your name, you know, the, the names are lost in this, right. which is a sign of, of identity and degree and relationship that mm-hmm. uh, gets, gets leveled out 
make mm-hmm. made a plane, right? Uh, in the biblical, uh, in the in the Baptist uh, uh, terminology, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Can I ask a basic reading comprehension question? Sure. Okay, so Ulysses' speech, the first, I mean, the first time I read it, I didn't really know what I was reading. The second time I read it, I thought it was a speech about, I thought it was an encouraging speech about why Troy is about to fall and we just have to hold on a little bit longer because they're, because they've gotten rid of degree and so they're consumed by mimetic contagion. But now it sounds like that my second reading was wrong too. And it's really about it's Ulysses diagnosis of why the Greeks haven't won yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Agamemnon has asked them what grief hath set the jaundice on your cheeks. So he just asked what, why do you guys look so sad? And they're offering explanations for that. And this is Ulysses very astute explanation for that. Essentially saying, you know, it's all Achilles' fault. He's he's mm-hmm. the source of all of this mimetic contagion. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it's Achilles' fault. He's sitting out. And so, so we don't have our highest model because he's the great soldier. And so we don't have our highest model. Yeah. And also he's disdaining Agamemnon. And the example of him disdaining Agamemnon. Oh, I see. Spreading. So it's his his disrespect, right? He's like some punk kid out there, you know, as Patrick talked about, right? Parents, like you're not not respecting your dad. And then your younger sibling picks up on that. And right, well, I don't have to respect you, my older sibling, kind of a thing. And this is just spreading and spreading and spreading. Yeah. So Troy, it's not that Troy is strong, it's that we are we're we're divided in, in faction. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah. The, the, the uh, elementary level was what I needed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, sure. Absolutely. Shakespeare's tough. <laughs> is, is this an example of the doubling the, so this, the way that it spreads from step to step, it's mm-hmm. everyone is turned against each other in a sense, but also they all look the same. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and that that's that's the the image of the storm is that because in a in a stormy situation, uh, everything looks the same. You lose all degree, priority, place, course, proportion, season, form, office, and custom, and all line of order. So these are all things where everything finds their place. And so when nothing has a place, it's because everything has become indistinguishable and uniform. And, and the doubling is the first movement. So the doubling between uh, Achilles and uh, Agamemnon and the rivalry for Briseis, they, they both want the same girl. So she's like the Sally, the, the two want the Sally, but it should be, well, Agamemnon, he's the one that can, you know, take Briseis because he's the king. He gets to do what he wants. But the young buck, Achilles, wants the, uh, the prize, Briseis. And so they start quarreling over, well, if he got his way, it'd be the overthrow of all order and rank. Because it isn't just him getting what he wants, it's that he shouldn't want her because he's not in a position to get what he wants. But Agamemnon is. So it really isn't Briseis as Agamemnon versus Achilles relative to the order. Uh, but but th- we'll be touching on this quite a bit, but it's kind of like Oedipus. So Oedipus, uh, Oedipus stands in for your dad. Your dad says you should want your mom because he obviously wants her as his wife. 
Okay, but the Oedipus complex, a la Freud, that, that Gerard's kind of criticizing quite a bit, is that you want your mom because your dad has her. Okay, so if you go after your mom, that means you got to kill your dad. And so, but to kill your dad is the elimination of all rank. You've destroyed the family. You're no longer a child. Or you're the, there's no longer a parent. There's no mother or father. You've destroyed everything insofar as you were to act out on your Oedipetal desires and go after your mom because you've got to eliminate your dad. So that means you've got to stick to uh, wanting only through your dad's eyes. And so you want your mom to be the wife of your dad. And you want your dad to be the husband of, of his wife and you want to be the child. So as long as you obey the law and don't want mom, then you have a whole intact family. You have you have degree. But there's always that desire that Plato talks about that the tyrant is does in this outward stage what people dream about. And the young kid dreams of overthrowing all degree. But that dream is a tyrannical dream that his the, the law keeps in check. And then he only imitates externally. But if he were to internally imitate his dad, then he kills the dad, gets the mom, but then he's at war with everybody else, all comers. So then everybody becomes brothers with no dad around. And so the war of all these brothers is that they all become interchangeable with one another. So that's the, that's the crisis of degree when people become brothers and they lose a dad, when they become soldiers without a general, when they become bees, worker bees without the queen, without the queen, their honey making makes no sense. Yeah, I was really struck by that image, right? Because that's the problem is, or the political problem of mimetic desire mm -hmm. is you lose sight of the fact, as you as uh, as Ulysses says, right? When the general is not like the hive, so the political community is no longer like the hive that everybody is. Mm -hmm. But returning to right and and shoring up and uh, and strengthening. Mm -hmm. But instead, all of these right individual factions, mm -hmm. right? So that it seems like right. Yeah, I think Shakespeare seems to see the political ramifications of of, of what he calls envious fever, right? Mm -hmm. Or what maybe was right, the right would say, mimetic desire, right? That it, yeah. it has a political dimension. Yeah, I think yeah. somewhere else in the play, he says we go from uh, fraction to faction. And mm -hmm. I think that's a little earlier, and I think you know, fraction is that is the degree. It's the division of into degrees. So exactly, you're uh, onto the political uh, ramifications of of uh, destroying that. Right. So, so to put this in terms of three steps, uh, Gerard actually deals with this in two different chapters, but we're dealing with it all together here. The first step would be degree. When you have degree, you have the father and the son, and the son would never think of of laying a finger on his dad. Okay, so that's because you have degree between father and son, and likewise with general and uh, lieutenants. Um, but then once the son strikes at the father, then you have the crisis of degree. That's what's going on with Achilles and the Agamemnon, and that will get worse and worse. That'll always accelerate. Uh, okay, but then you have the third movement is what you see with, with the universal wolf and the universal prey. That becomes in the solution to the crisis. And then if you solve the crisis, you get back to the first stage again. So actually by the, the wolf devouring itself, that becomes the foundation of that order you had beforehand. And so any civilization, any order for Gerard was because there in the past, there was already a crisis of degree that was resolved by the wolf devouring itself. 
And that's where that everybody at war with one another, they go to war, the all against the one. Once you have the all against the one, then that becomes, then the, you can have degree again. You can have law, you can have justice, you can have generals, you can have fathers, you can have families and marriages. And all those things are dependent upon having overcome this problem. But then that means the problem is that victim, when you overcame the crisis somehow in the past, underneath the pile of stones, when you, vict- when you killed somebody, uh, that you said he's the problem and you solved it, that victim is the foundation for all order. So it's like the pyramids, the structure of the pyramids, the, the, why they're like a pile of rocks. Gerard would say, yeah, those pyramids, underneath the pyramid is a god. Why is there a god? He was kind of that uh, king, but he was a king that was kind of slain, hence the pile of stones. But by you putting all your hostility against this one person, now you look at one another that have all thrown the stones and you're not hostile to your brothers and sisters around you. And so this God had a double quality. He's the worst thing in the world, but then he's the God that restored order and gave you civilization. So that pile of stones is the creation of civilization. And then the gods are behind every civilization. The gods are behind every city because the gods are just a way of talking about that past event that has occurred in every society. Every society is founded upon some fundamental victim and murder. But you've now deified that victim and turned him into a god because of the salutary effects he has in restoring and giving you the order that you now fund yourself out of. And so this is kind of the counting of the origin of gods as well. So that's what he's making quite a claim. He's basically, why do all civilizations have stories about gods? Is it because they are gullible and they believe in silly things that we don't we know don't exist he's saying no the gods are always a political artifact they're always the gods of the city because to have a city and have rank you got to have some terrible demon that's been turned into a god some scapegoat some victim that you've murdered but in that very act of murder you've now founded all order we'll see with rome uh, this happened when they killed the king it's going to happen with Mark Anthony, et cetera, is going to crop up again and again. You've got to found all civilization by that that wolf devouring itself. Strange stuff here. So, Thomas, what are you thinking? You look like you got a question. So, I am uh, trying to work through what I think would be original source material, the Iliad, which has been a very long time since I've read, and I didn't read any further in this text beyond what was assigned. Mm-hmm. But this uh, this episode occurs on the day that Ajax had one of his victories over Hector. I think he had two in the Iliad. And um, I'm just trying to get the kind of like the metaphors of who is the scapegoat figured out in my head. Because the, the Shakespeare says that Ajax was Trojan. I don't remember that actually from the Iliad. But it says that earlier in, in this text. Um, so he's fighting with the Greeks. Uh, you know, Achilles and Ajax have a really, really clear rivalry. But they're still on the same side. Uh, when Achilles kills Hector, it's Ajax that protects Hector's body, if I remember correctly. And then in the end, it's Ajax that actually has a problem with Ulysses. He's jealous of Ulysses. He has that, I think that, um, that uh, uh, what's our terminology here? Anyway, he's jealous of, of him getting the armor over Ajax, because Ajax is a better warrior than Ulysses. So anyway, I'm just trying to figure out the metaphor. Like, who is the scapegoat in the Iliad? Who gets the... Uh, who gets to assign the, uh, you know, that negative, that negative aspect. No. What do you think, Tiffany? I mean, there's Shakespeare's account at the end of this, a bit rough on the details, but then you can address the Iliad just at home or independent of Shakespeare. But who gets killed at the end of Troilus and Cressida? Gerard focuses on that. Somebody gets killed finally at the end. Is it Hector? My memory is a bit fuzzy at this point. 
but you can read in the chapter and in, in, uh, later on in Shakespeare's uh, uh, Gerard's book on Shakespeare, he's going to, we're not going to read it, but he's going to talk about the end of Elisa's play. And he says that there you have the victim where the wolf devours itself. And I think it's Hector, but I'm not sure. But in terms yeah. of a larger question, I think just if you were to see the Iliad in the light of this, there's a way that what's what's the solution to the Iliad? It really is the murder of Hector. That yeah. somehow that anger of Achilles on the body and then dragging the body around the city, uh, that becomes this horrible act of violence. It gets all the anger out, but then it gets purged by him giving the body back to the father. And by giving the body back to the father, now there's a way that they're all kind of reconciled in a strange sort of way. Even though they're so violent and this is madness, there's this, it becomes the foundation of the humanity that gets restored to them. They're not just fighting animals when Achilles gives the body back to his father. So then you have a father and a son again, uh, uh, Hector and, um, and uh, Priam. And that becomes civilization restored. And, and Achilles now becomes sane. He's no longer a mad animal anymore at this point. He's now back in his senses, his civilized senses, by seeing the, that his father is like Hector's father. So you have fathers and sons restored, whereas before they're just feuding brothers. Uh, yeah, and you are you're right at the end of Troilus and Cressida is Hector, mm-hmm. who is yeah. killed as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. yeah, so I think it seems like both in mm-hmm. the play and and in the Iliad, then that that Hector would be the scapegoat figure. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, although in the Iliad he is clear, uh, well, he's he's both uh, deeply flawed and mm-hmm. and profoundly appealing. So he's a complicated scapegoat. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, straightforward. In, in the Iliad, the gods actually protect his body from being desecrated because they say he, you know, he died with great honor. He fought with honor. He had virtue, right? He was a virtuous character, even though he was quote unquote the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's uh, yeah. I'm just I'm just trying to unpack the metaphor. I'm just trying to think about it. Yeah, but yeah. it seems it seems to me like um, it seems to me like there it's it's being problematized by the source material. Is what I'm. That's what that's what my confused look was about. Keep keep this in mind when we get to Julius Caesar, because you think <laughs> of Julius Caesar would be killing of Caesar that solves the problem, but that doesn't. The murder of Caesar doesn't solve it. It's going to be when Anthony. I'm uh, uh, What's his name? Uh, Brutus kills himself. So so he's going to shift the attention from Julius Caesar to Brutus. Brutus somehow can bring peace the way Julius Caesar can't. So that'll be, so keep your question in mind when you're reading that to see why he shifts to Brutus from Caesar. He thinks there's something more appropriate about Brutus than Caesar. And so I think Hector is very similar, more to, more similar to Brutus than Caesar in terms of restoring order. Further questions about this this idea of external mediation and degree? Nobody's democratic soul is rising up in hostility against rank. Nobody's above anybody else. We're all Democrats here. Who do you think you are, you elites? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm definitely struggling with that. Uh, I I guess I'm I'm struggling to see how the existence of degree is a solution to this mimetic desire to covetousness if somebody has something that i something that that i don't have is inherent in this or or maybe not necessarily the only way that this desire is created but at least seems to be maybe the most common or um, that some i i desire the cheerleader 
but only one guy can have the cheerleader type of type of thing. Mm-hmm. Is it the degree has to be so great, right? If you're so far above me, then I won't desire what you have. Mm-hmm. I, I I guess I'm, yeah, I don't, I, I don't understand how degree is the solution to the problem. If the problem is so often, I want something that someone else has mm-hmm. degree would seem to just guarantee that state and like basically codify it and kind of cast a veneer of, of loveliness over it to say it is wonderful that some people have more than other people, even as we are all profoundly consumed by our own desire for what other people have. Right. Yeah. Well, a, a parable comes to mind. Uh, I think it's kind of pertinent to the, the story of the talents. Um, because the talents are all degree, right? You have different levels of talents. The main thing is that you invest them. As long as you bury the talents and I mean, don't bury them, you invest them. Then you are a good servant to the master who can actually tell you whether you're a good servant or not. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Who's the servant that screws up? The, the servant that buries the talents. Okay, now I think that's kind of the equivalent of covetousness and envy is you're not wanting. And, and if you want through a third party, you also, it increases, it becomes fertile. Uh, but if you want to hang on to it, which means in one sense, you're taking it away because you think you can own it on its own. And so that's where envy and covetousness is, is not really a wanting at all. It's actually wa- wanting to take. It's wanting to take from your rival. It's not actually wanting, but if you want through a degree, then you you want whatever you want and you can want it through their eyes. You can also want whatever, what little you have uh, and it won't be taken away from you because if, if you have it through the gift giver, then it doesn't matter. So I think the whole biblical story by imitating the father in heaven, you want everything the way he gives it. Uh, but the revolt is to want it the way you give it yourself, which always involves you're going to take it from somebody else as though you could give yourself anything. You can only receive and you receive by something above you or to shift slightly the image uh, relative to our political season of being moderns. Um, when you hear that passage in Galatians, there's neither a uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We are all blank in Christ Jesus. We as Democrats and moderns here, we are all equal in Christ Jesus because we think in Christ Jesus, there's no rank. But I think the more appropriate image is and we are all one in Christ Jesus. The oneness is of a body and bodies are intrinsically ranked as organisms, head, shoulders, middle. And so it's, 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 it's all ranked. It's got the general, the head, uh, Christ. And because you're one in Christ Jesus, that's why there's no junior Greek male nor female, because you're united through the head but you got to have a head. But the modern way of imitating that and replacing it is to say we are all equal in Christ Jesus. Well, what does that equality mean? This is why the romantics, Rousseau, Hegel, Marx get in. They have an idea of a, a circle that's, that is horizontal, that there's no above, there's no below. It's all wanting to have this no degree whatsoever. And then saying you have equality rather than rank. But then the problem is how do they stave off this mimetic contagion is going to break out when everybody is the same. Everybody is the same. Everybody thinks the same. Anybody who's different goes voluntarily into the madhouse to quote Nietzsche. That's the, that's the kind of the madness of equality as opposed to external degree, external mimesis. So it's similar to Christianity, but it's replacing it with, in one sense, making covetousness the heart of modern political thought rather than trying to overcome it through something else. Is there something there too, Downey, with um, you don't just want to have what your rival has, but you want to be your rival? 
Yeah, that's we'll get into that next class. Yeah, that's when we start. When you read Midsummer's Night's Dream, that that's where you're going to see it's. You'll you'll see the two women actually. They don't so much want the guy; they want to be the person that's her rival. And, and, so and the, the term will say is you want to be translated into this person, be that person. So you, Sean, you were a nerd in high school, no doubt. Okay, uh, and when you were jealous of the of the quarterback's girlfriend, Sally. Okay, the argument would be you didn't really want Sally; you wanted to be the quarterback. Mm -hmm. so that's what you're really after. So Gerard will actually bring out kind of this this kind of homoerotic quality that there's the sexual desire for Sally can get easily transferred to a sexual relationship to the quarterback because he's the guy that's really sexy because he's got the girl that shows he's sexy. So there's a weird sort of movement from having to being, wanting to be the guy, wanting to be the man, wanting to be the, the cool that's, kid. That would be where rank kind of helps uh, keep that at bay because if, exactly. if I acknowledge that I'm below you, then I, I can't, there can't be any hope for me. There's not going to be any danger of me wanting to be you. Mm -hmm. But the second I think I can be your equal right uh, now, now we've got the competition. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got it. Uh, so rank only works if people accept their place. Right. Okay. Yeah. It, so, yeah. So the existence the of rank could cause a kind of mimetic desire. It's, say that again, Tiffany. I missed the last one. Uh, sure. Yeah. So the the existence of rank could be the source of of mimetic desire. The fact that the football player is my social superior, is more handsome than me, has maybe more money, you know, uh, more more admiration, mm -hmm. could be a source of of covetousness. Mm -hmm. But if I threw a kind of divine resignation say well god has just made me a nerd and so i'm okay with being a nerd and so i can't possibly have what he has mm -hmm. and i resign myself to my sort of lowly state then then it works mm -hmm. that's yeah. what we have. That, so that's a good way of putting it yeah yeah back to the stone analogy right that would be equivalent to actually seeing the stone at your feet becoming mm -hmm. aware of it would that be would that be right yeah yeah you don't get scandalized by the quarterback if you're a, you become a happy nerd and that's a good way of doing it I mean, that's one of the crazy things of you know unhappy nerds are dangerous things right the guy that blows away people at school is an unhappy nerd why because he thought he could be the quarterback he should get solid and now he's deadly literally deadly but if he was just an old-fashioned nerd well i'm a nerd you know she's not gonna look at me nor should she then he's never angry at the quarterback but the anger comes from when he somehow thinks well why is he better than me I don't think there, and we'll see that between these two women. Why she thinks she's more pretty than I am. We kind of look the same. She may have black hair. I've got blonde hair, but we're kind of the same. And then you get more anger. But if you say, oh, no, she's beautiful, you know, of course he's going to like her, not me. Then you don't have the anger. The anger rises with the level of uh, uh, indifference and equality between the two. The more you're interchangeable, the more you're a double, the more anger there is. The less you're a double, the more rank you have. Then you would, as you're bringing out, Sean, you would never think, well, I can't be that person. I want to try. And then you're content. So that would be good being. The, the dangerous being is when everybody wants to be everybody else. All this talk about uh, this mythical Sally has got me wondering. And then maybe I plowed through it. I didn't notice it. But did Gerard ever talk about why coveting the wife is separate from coveting everything else? And that's the Catholic ordering of the commandments. It's not the Jewish ordering. Right. Is that yeah. something that he addresses, actually? 
Uh, no, they, he doesn't address that, but it's, as Alex is saying, that's, that's kind of the road not taken by Gerard, but he could take it. And I think it's easily taken is that you can fold, you can fold Gerard into, you know, the Catholic understanding of marriage and wives. Uh, and you can then elaborate what he's doing if you bring a notion of nature. And then you bring in the more details from the biblical story, the whole, because the whole biblical story is a story about a marriage and a relationship of a woman who's a, a you could be faithful or you could be having an adulterous relationship. That's going to be central to this. But he tends to downplay that. And also fathers and sons is important, but he tends in the Oedipedal thing, I think is big, but he tends to say that's a mistake. It really isn't Oedipedal at all. So he, so it, there's a lot of stuff you can add to what Gerard's doing and get more out of what he's, he lays out. But yeah, I think that really does. That's why a husband's relationship to the wife is so key. Well, look at it this way in terms of the crisis of degree. Okay, why do you not covet your neighbor's wife? Why, if you lust in your heart for her, that's adultery. Because what you're doing is you're not just relating to her or the husband. You are you are going to war against the vow, the degree that makes you what you are. See, so that's why you promise these things. You have a covenant. And the covenant is that degree where everybody is what they are relative to status. That's so-and-so's wife. Okay, so it isn't her and the fact she's Sally or that she's married to Joe. It's that that is his wife, and the wife is the degree that makes her what she is. And so then if you relate to everybody in terms of that, that law, the covenant, the degrees, then you just don't waste your time uh, coveting your neighbor's wife because that's his wife, and she's his wife relative to the law, and I can't challenge the law. But if you do challenge the law, if you challenge that, then you do have a crisis degree, then everybody's sleeping with everybody, everybody's a threat to everybody else, everybody's going to steal your woman. Because she's not your wife, she's your woman. And if she's your woman, then every other guy's at war with your woman. And you got a real problem here. That's kind of the state we're in now. Everybody are men and women, but they're not husband and wife. Husband and wife is a role, but a man and a woman are just kind of two people that desire one another. And that desire is contagious and free-floating, and it uh, could lead to a disaster if it gets out of hand. Whereas you don't focus on desire with uh, husband and wife. Because that's all the, the the degree, the ranking is more real than the individuals that plug into that rank. And that then will be the image of God. God marries himself to humanity. And so that's going to be the his way of reinstoring rank into humanity by reinstoring the covenant of marriage for all of humanity. And then you're loved, you're married no matter what. You don't have to somehow earn your way. It It is a fact. And there's a a vow and a stable degree that makes everything what it is. Same with family and sons, et cetera. So the son, sons to the father, his husband's the wife. Those are the two big images in the, in the Bible, sons and fathers, uh, uh, husband and wife. And then what's the problem in the Bible? Brothers, just brothers on their own, sans fathers. Right. So just, There's a lot of biblical stories of brothers betraying one another. Right, and then I'm, and I'm kind of wondering about the uh, theology of saying you know men and women have to become one flesh, and you know yeah. how does that sort of that concept of mimetic desire mm -hmm. uh, manifest itself when you are you know supposed to be bound to somebody like thoroughly, fully? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We won't go into that now, but just to give a teaser for that, uh, think of this: in, when you're married to Christ, there's a way that you are married to your neighbor's wife, right? Because you're you're married to the church and through the church in a covenantal marriage, there's a way that 
that life is not cut off from you through this third thing you participated because no no marriage just a solitary marriage it's always you have a marriage through that fundamental marriage of christ marriage to the church and so that allows you to share in so-and-so's wife they share in so-and-so's husband because you do that through that fundamental marriage of christ marriage to the church so that becomes the rank in which you can have all these things but without a rivalrous relationship so you're never you're not coveting because in one sense you have it through this third party through the order in your rank the way the way virtue that's why i bring out with virtue you you participate in the virtue of the fastest run in the world you're not fast but a fast runner you partake in once you have that third thing of nature you share the nature of that you're a running animal and because you're a running animal when you see the fastest human in the world that's excellent at it you partake in their excellence because you partake in that third thing nature which has degrees in it and then in christ it becomes a marriage through marriage you partake in all other marriages so all covenantal husband spouses are related to one another through their spousal relationship to Christ. So then the way a father could prevent a rivalry from arising between him and his son would be to keep, keep the ranks clear between, between the son and the father, not let it devolve into a friendship. Exactly. Yeah. Well, not devolve. I mean, that would be, it could ascend to a friendship. Ascend, it could, yeah. Right. Yeah, it could ascend to a friendship, but you want to do that later. You don't want to be friends with a kid when they're a kid. Right. But once you're adult, then friendship is kind of the new category you can have. And that would be Aristotle's account of, of that. He even says about marriage couple that, that a husband and wife, they, they're lover and beloved. We'll see that lover and beloved is, is, has to do with desire. But then that may start a marriage. And once you're married, you, a good marriage has friendship. Okay, well, in one sense, friendship, what Aristotle describes is what a, a Christian promises to be a friend to their wife. So they don't they don't promise they're gonna be in, as long as their love shall last, they promise in one sense to act like friends to one another. And so you will act like friends. Well, that's because you're a friend of God. You can be a friend of God if something you can be friends with one another. But so that's kind of the ascent of friendship. The descent would be a, to be a buddy. And buddies are kind of rankless. Buddies don't really have a third thing that unites them. They're like gang members, they're all buddies. And if your dad's your buddy, you're in trouble when you're young because he's not a father. So hopefully you have a sense of where we're going. Um, if some of this seemed foggy, go back and reread or read for the first time that section from I See Satan Fall. That'll kind of hopefully catch you up with this intro stuff. But when you read the Theater of Envy, halfway through A Midsummer Night's Dream, we'll just do half of it next class. That also kind of gives a rehash of the same area, but with illustrations from uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, primarily Hermia. And uh, the other girl, Hermione, I forget her name, but but he, he's kind of used the two guys and two girls as kind of a way of illustrating this kind of triangulation. So a lot of it will be fun just kind of examining our uh, loves in the light of this and yet kind of see the dangerous thing lurking around our loves. So Shakespeare helps us bring that out and Shakespeare and Gerard will do it as well. So that's what we'll do for next class. Yeah, thanks, everybody. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2021. Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.